A quick word of warning before we get moving here. Marie Menard has neither approved nor has she sanctioned any portion of this podcast. In fact, she probably wouldn't even approve of this podcast. So, you can stop listening right now if you want to succumb to Maureen's will. Or, you can keep listening and fight the system. This is Pushing the A. Welcome back to Pushing the A. We're back here with Chapter 20. We're going to talk about the economic impacts of the Civil War between the Confederate States of the United States of America, the Confederate States of America, rather, and the United States of America. Probably isn't as exciting, per se, as the battles, or the forts, or the presidents, or the generals, but... It's equally important and probably gives you a really important insight as we march on towards chapter 21 and this test on Friday. So let's get to it. So, Abraham Lincoln is in office starting in March 1861. Seven states are gone. Like, they're just out of there. Eight are threatening to leave. If the United States invades the South, um, the South will fight. Uh, and in Lincoln's inaugural, Lincoln makes it clear that that is not what he wants to happen. He says, we're not going to fight unless we are provoked. But consider the following. Based on the sheer geography of North America... Secession just is not impractical. We're border states, and we're both, these are large countries, these have worked well together, and we need each other, so consider that. There are serious worries about the United States on an international stage. Um, Europe would much appreciate it if the United States divided into the Confederate states and the United States so they could ignore the Monroe Doctrine, the Monroe Doctrine and they could go and colonize South America. Ultimately, this war is going to come down to debt. It's going to come down to territories. It's going to come down to... two other things that I can't read. So really, it's going to come down to two things, debt and territory. Oh, I see. These are explanations as to why it's practical for the U.S. and the Confederate States to be together. You know why. 1861, there are these federal forts. Um, and they're on the south, and the south is going through, and they're taking their arsenal, their arsenals, their arsenals, and the mints, and there are two left. The most important is Fort Sumter in South Carolina. In April, they run out of provisions completely. So the U.S. could send reinforcements. However, that would cause a fight, because... 
if they send reinforcements to this fort, which blocks the Charleston Harbor, probably not going to get a great reaction from South Carolina as the world's loudest motorcycle rides directly by. In the spring of 1861, Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina all join into the Confederate cause. Ultimately, Lincoln makes the decision that protecting federal land is more important, and he sends troops with provisions to South Carolina. He makes it very clear that this is not a act of war. This is not an attack. We are just simply helping the people that we have there. South Carolina sees it as a complete act of war. The Union then sends the Navy south, and the South says, you know what? It's on. They open fire on the fort. The fort surrenders. The North is now in the war. Before, the North is sort of, you can leave, just leave peacefully. Now that they've been attacked, they're ready to go. Fired up, ready to go. In April 1861, 75,000 men are called to service to fight for the Union. A lot of people try and volunteer, and they're turned away. That's not a mistake the Union's going to make again in a couple of years. So, as a function of the way this is divided, it's not like there's an ocean separating the two the two countries, or even a country separating the two countries. Um, there are a few slave states on the border and that are remaining, rather, for the United States. So Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware are all still in the Union. If the North had gone first, they would have immediately split. They would have said, we're with the South. If those states had gone to the South, the South probably wins this war. Moreover, these states have more than 50% of the population of the White South, so this would be a huge addition, if only in population and size of the army. They also have really valuable assets. They have horses and mules and they can manufacture. On the Ohio River, uh, West Virginia has seceded from regular Virginia so they can be a free state. Lincoln really needs Kentucky he really needs West Virginia for the Cumberland and Ohio rivers. Um, the What he said was something along the lines of, I want Maryland, I need Kentucky. Um, troops and martial law then go into effect in to these border states that are threatening to secede. In Maryland, elections become overseen elections. You... Um, have to walk in with your party on your your party on your belt and there are troops escorting you. It's a very serious affair. This is important because if Virginia's already gone and Maryland's gonna go, suddenly DC is this tiny little Union hole in this checkerboard of Confederate states. So they have to keep Maryland free, otherwise, or not free, but part of the Union because otherwise DC is surrounded and that's never a good idea. Um, Union soldiers come into West Virginia and Maryland to fight civil wars to keep them in the Union. And Abe Lincoln can't say that this is a war of abolition. Instead, he says this is a war to save the Union. If he says it's a war of abolition, then Maryland and those other states leave. He has to say this is for the Union. Indians, um, some of them go to the Confederates. So some of them, the five civilized, um, Cheek, Cherokee, Choctaw, uh, Cheek, Cherokee, Choctaw, I think Seminole, one other, I always forget, those went to the Confederates, and they had diplomats and representation. Uh, those who go with the Union, mainly the Plain Indians, the Lakotas, are ultimately hurt later. And this is a function of the five civilized have been hurt by the Union before. 
They've been affected by the Indian Removal Act. They've gone on the turn of tears. They've lost their homes. They don't have anything good to say about the Union, and the South needs them, and they're willing to give them representation. These Plain Indians have yet to be affected by, or they've been affected, but certainly not as heavily, by the horrors of the Indian Removal Act. So, when we look at the South and the North comparatively, um, when we look at the South and the North comparatively in terms of what kinds of forces that they had, the South looked like they had this advantage at the start. Um, they had only to tie to win this war. In essence, if they didn't win, but if they held their ground, then they get to exist as a nation, which is ultimately the purpose of their war. Also, they're on the defensive, so they know the land, they know where they're going, they know what they're doing. Um, existence is just all they're shooting for, right? So their morale is much better. They have much less to accomplish. They also have better officers between Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and they have these soldiers who are born soldiers and know their way around guns. Um, they also have this scary, weird rebel yell, which is pretty freaking weird. Eventually, what does them in is they run out of supplies. Um, one of the one of the rallying cries to get the soldiers going is they have cheese in their belts. Go take their cheese. It's kind of funny. Also, their transport sort of collapses, um, and their economy becomes their weakness. Ultimately, in the north, they have a strong economic uh, foothold. They have factories and farms and rail and sea and a navy. Uh, and a blockade that works. They also just have more men, 22 million to the south, 9 million. They have a bunch of European immigrants from Britain, Ireland, and Germany coming in, many enlisting or ending up in the army. The Union ultimately is playing a long game, where the longer the war goes, the more stretched financially and transport-wise the South is going to be. If they can hold off the South, their chances of winning go drastically up and vice versa for the South. The South can only win if they go quickly, if the border states flip to them, if the British and the French, and the French and the France and the French help them out, and if Northern morale goes down so that calls for war uh, come to a point, calls to end the war come to a point where they actually decide to end the war. The South is expecting and needs this foreign help uh, from Europe. They don't get it. European leaders are sympathizing with them, but the working class is pro-North. They've read Uncle Tom's Cabin. They're anti-slavery. Moreover, um, or not moreover, but specifically, they just don't want to... They'd rather uh, keep, their, keep their citizens happy than go and fight in a war that they don't have too much of a stake in. They do have a stake in it in terms of cotton. British mills rely almost exclusively on southern cotton, um... Southern cotton is some of 75% of these British mills. Um, in the South, it's hoping that the economy is going to outweigh the morals of the of the people. But ultimately, um, they've accidentally left this cotton surplus in Britain. And they don't need more by the time uh, the, the war runs or the war comes around. And when they do run out of cotton... It's long after the war has become a war about slavery, and they can't turn at this point. So many people lose their jobs from this war. The U.S. as, when I say the U.S., I mean the Union, 
They send food from when they go south as sort of a little help. And India and Egypt come in and fill the void where they make cotton. Uh, and then ultimately the economy is re-stimulated through war industries. Um, also in the north, wheat and corn have been having particularly good harvests so that the north can feed itself and that the British and the Europeans can be fed. Interestingly, um, the weather was also quite good for the North in this time, and the Mechanical Reaper uh, helped them, the Mechanical Reaper made strides and helped them bring in a lot more of their crop total than before. The British economy relied on the South ultimately, but the British people and the lives of the British people relied on the Union for their food. However, just because uh, things were all hunky-dory between the British and the United States eventually does not mean that there were not a few run-ins. So the Trent Affair in 1861, a Union ship stopped uh, the British Trent that had two Confederate diplomats on it, and they removed them. This is basically the beginning of a process. This is the British starting a move towards beginning to recognize the Confederacy as the Confederacy as a country, as a diplomatic state. The British get angry. You can't really take our guys off of a boat like that. Uh, so they begin to send redcoats to Canada. Communications are slow enough these days, though, that they are eventually able... Everyone's eventually able to calm down. Lincoln says, look, one war at a time. This is not worth starting another fight about. Uh, the British also continue to build these warships. So the Alabama, uh, they use some loophole in the British law code. It's manned by British, uh, by British people, but it's a Confederate ship. It's a Confederate ship is what it really is. The British are considered to be the port of the Confederates, and eventually they decide to stop that it's not worth making America this angry. They seize the boats uh, that have been made, and they try to stay neutral. Um, otherwise, the U.S. might have gone for Canada. And speaking of the United States going for Canada... The Laird Rams are some boats that the British are building before they start seizing boats. There's two Confederate warships. They're ironclads. They're dangerous. They could have taken the U.S. wooden ships rather easily. The U.S. goes for Canada in retaliation. Suddenly, we've got two wars going on. Um, the British buy the ships. They pay the U.S. and uh, just the U.S., actually, $15.5 million for any previous damage. Some Southerners try to go to Canada and then come in from Canada to attack. In the North, these uh, Irish people, these Irish immigrants that hate anything to do with Britain, or within a 500-mile radius of Britain, raise quote-unquote armies and they fight against these people coming. At the end of the war, both the United States and Canada are united. The United States is going to win this war, by the way. Um... Canada eventually ends up united as the Dominion of Canada in 1867, um, just in case the United States attacks it. Also, interestingly, Napoleon III in France decides to send Maximilian of Austria to Mexico City to take over Mexico, and they're hoping that the U.S. is going to ignore it because they're too busy fighting the Civil War. And for a while, that does ring true, and then when the U.S. wins, uh, he's hung out to dry, and by hung out, I mean quite literally hung out to dry. So let's take a look at the two leaders here. So on the south side, we have Jefferson Davis. Uh, for the Union, we have Abraham Lincoln. So Davis is in this interesting position. So the Confederate states are 
United Confederate States, I guess, are created on the concept and the ideal of secession. So you can't really deny future secession to a state. But Davis is the equivalent of a federalist in this new governmental situation where he wants a, a strong central government. States' writers shut him down on that front. Georgia actually thinks of seceding from its secession, which is rather interesting. States' rights are good for the states, but bad overall for the Confederacy. Davis is unpopular, which is maybe something that gets lost in the lore of the Civil War and in the lore and the glory of the Confederacy if you're living in certain parts of the country. Davis was highly unpopular. He was overstretched. His Congress didn't like him. Um, to be fair, almost everyone, anyone would have been overstretched in that situation. The amount that it was a absurd amount that he had to fight on his own. Lincoln, on the other hand, um, has this long-established government with money and is recognized by the world. He knows and is able to well um, to bend the public opinion and use it to his advantage when he needs to. He does have these constitutional problems that he does run into, so the blockade he puts up outside of the South, technically not constitutional. Technically not constitutional. He raises the army. Um, he raises a larger army. He raises the size of the army. Also not technically constitutional. He tells the Treasury Department to give $2 million to three random people for the purposes of the war. No idea what that was. Probably not constitutional. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus. I have no idea what that means, but it's in Latin, so it's important. Uh, he also just increased this martial law in these border states, and he had these supervised elections, and... He stops newspapers that are speaking poorly of the Union. It's a lot of First Amendment-breaking stuff and a lot of presidential power-breaking stuff that he really shouldn't be able to do. But because this is kind of a life-or-death affair for the Union, Congress lets it slide for the moment. Davis could do that himself, or he could try. But because uh, he started a confederacy of the most the most prolific states, right, states, most prolifically independent states, it's going to be very hard for him to have the power to exert such changes upon the Confederacy. This is a large war. This is a large-scale war. A lot of men are needed. So the North is a volunteer army. At the beginning, in 1863, they moved to conscription, which is incredibly unfair to the poor. You can basically pay $300 for someone poorer than you to take your place back when $300 was $300. Uh, the army is still 90% volunteer by the end. In New York, there are the Irish and free blacks, and they are being drafted into the war because they are poor, and they're pissed off. So they have these draft rights in New York because they just got here, they're free, or they just escaped from the wrath of England. Now they're fighting in a war that they didn't ask to fight in, um, so they decide to break some stuff, which is understandable. Also, these people called bounty brokers go from poor houses to poor house. Uh, they bring alcohol and basically trick people into signing up to fight in the war. Other people try to game the system of uh, volunteering. So you will go and volunteer, then you desert, and then you go and volunteer again, you get your money, you desert, so on, so on. In the South, it's also a volunteer army at first, but they have fewer people, so they run out faster, and 
they started doing conscription in April 1862. Um, it is it is a vastly unfair advantage for the rich. If you have 20 or more slaves, i.e. you're wealthy, you can just say, I, I'm not going to fight. Um, it's a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Uh, moreover, a lot of people just stay back at the ranch to mind the slaves, um, which is a horrible thing to say, but the reality of the situation. Also, the South is a lot fewer people, so they get very desperate very quickly. So the Union has a more ideal age range for uh, the for their soldiers. In the South, if you are age 17 or age 50, uh, you could be in this war, which is basically the equivalent of want to say it would be like Jamie and Sam Ross fighting against fighting uh, at each other's side assuming that they both lived in the south at the time the north fiscally going back to the fiscal things uh, is far better off they have a better foundation they deal with everything better they put on excise on tobacco and alcohol pretty quickly they add an income tax um, and they hike customs rates all for war money. Uh, the biggest source of money is bonds, uh, which they get crazy amounts of money from around $2 billion. Uh, the moral tariff uh, repeals the low tariff of 1857. Uh, duties go up between 5 and 10% uh, to 1846 levels. So generally, the North knows what it's doing economically. Uh, in the South, as customs go up in the North, the blockade is getting better uh, that the North is exerting on the South. They give away about $400 million worth of bonds, or they sell $400 million worth of bonds. They raise taxes. In the North, people hate tax. Everyone hates taxes. In the North, they're raised and people deal with them. In the South, they're raised and people absolutely hate it. Um, the North, by adding these taxes and these excises, uh, protects their manufacturers hurt by this new income tax, and the Republicans become the party of the tariff and the income tax. The Treasury begins to issue these greenbacks, uh, which are basically... It, there's not really an underlying fiscal value to them, but they are used anyways, uh, and they depreciate to around 39 cents on the dollar. Uh, additionally, a national banking system is introduced, um... So if you join in, you can give away bonds and use greenbacks. Eventually, this is replaced by the Federal Reserve. Ah, missed my, uh, dropped my card. The North, because of all this, goes through this period of crazy prosperity. Uh, the new tariff leads to new favorable conditions for manufacturing, leading to new factories. Uh, prices go up, generally, so businesses are helped. Machines are saving labor. Um, the sewing machine basically destroys the idea of personalized clothing and everyone starts buying clothing in sizes. So that's the plus, right? The North is having this great economic growth period while they're in a war. On the downside, with any period of economic growth, a new class of extravagant hyper-wealthy are going to come around. So the first real class of millionaires comes into existence. They put profit over patriotism. They give out products that are shoddy. Um, it's morally repugnant, but they make a lot of money, so pick your poison. 
overall, the economy expands greatly. Um, and I have my <laughs> I have my clothing point here again. So uh, blame the Civil War for the absurdity of Forever Twenty One, I guess. Also, in the North, farm boys are fighting and they're making food. Um, and the profits that they get from their food go to guns and ships via the income tax. Uh, in 1859, they find petrol in Pennsylvania. The 59ers come through. In 1862, the Homestead Act finally passes. Um, the only industry in the North that really suffered was the maritime trade. The trade of ships and sailing sort of took a hit, but that was really it. Also, you've got women taking over men's jobs, um, and women just playing a big part in this war in general. You've got around 400 women that just go in and straight up pose as soldiers. Um, other women go and work in the treasury, or sew, or spy. Lisa Blackwell organized...